0: Well, with that, we are finishing the book of Ephesians. Mike read all the way to the end, and I think that's kind of special. It's the first complete walkthrough we've done together as a church uh, through a book of the Bible, and it's exciting. You know, that means there's only 65 left, and so uh, we better get to work. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, I hope you've enjoyed that. I, I hope it's given you a deeper knowledge of the book of Ephesians. You've been able to see how the individual passages fit together to make the whole. Most of all, I really pray that, you know, this whole theme of growing up in Christ has been true in your life. And that, as we've seen Paul talk about the salvation and the blessings that are ours in Jesus, that we'd experience that growth, that he'd build us up so that we grow into maturity, into the head who is Christ. You know, taking it like we did, I think this is the 17th week. I um, mean, so going as slow as we did, you know, it's sometimes easy to miss the individual or the, to see the, the the forest for the trees. I messed that analogy up completely. But you get the point. Going slowly, you sometimes get disoriented. And, uh, you know, it, it's a majestic book. We, we see things like Paul talks about in chapter one that the Father chose us before the foundation of the world and that He's got this mystery a plan that's been laid down since before time began that's only now been revealed in Christ talks about individual salvation us going from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive together with Christ talks about sanctification putting off the old self and taking on the new self talks about like mundane stuff like how we should treat each other in the church um, building each other up in love uh, speaking to one another in songs hymns and spiritual songs Um, and then the past two weeks talking about a transformed home life that, you know, our relationships, the people who are closest to us can take on the character of Jesus. You know, I imagine that there was a guy sitting in the back of the church in Ephesus who listened to this letter read and, you know, had the courage. This probably didn't happen. He had the courage, though, to pipe up, I feel this way, and say, you sure you're talking about us? Right, because with the majestic stuff Paul has talked about, and then the actual way it plays out in our lives, there's often a disconnect. You know, God may have made salvation possible in Christ, and he may have bestowed on us all these wonderful blessings, but man, in the real world, uh, things look a little bit different. You You just take the past two weeks of marriage relationships, relationships between parents and kids, and you compare that to what most people in America today settle for, and you see how big the gap is. And so it can seem as if all this stuff Paul's talking about is just too good to be true. You know, if we lived our Christian life in a vacuum under ideal circumstances, I think we'd have a shot. We could, you know, if people weren't around us to make us mad all the time, you know, we could walk perfectly in step with the Holy Spirit. But the truth of it is, is that we do live our lives in the real world. Paul says our lives are lived out on a battlefield. Satan, all the time with these schemes, waging war, against us. And so Paul, as he closes his letter, turns his attention to the way any of us have any hope of achieving what Paul has laid down in this book. And it's by making use of the resources that God has supplied to us in Christ and standing firm. And so as we walk our way through this final passage, I I want you first to see the need to stand firm in Christ. Now let's look at these first three verses again. Paul begins this final section by drawing our attention to the need to stand firm because the enemy is scheming. See, Paul knew just as well as we do that, yeah, the life he just described in chapters 4 through 6 is absolutely hopeless, and pursuing it is a struggle. But he refused to blame that struggle on irreconcilable differences. Or personality quirks or incompatibilities. He knew that, yeah, the relationships we have with others may be the battleground for conflict, but the other person is never the source. Paul assures us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know how that hits you, but many people today would have a difficult time with this passage. I mean, they deny the presence of spiritual forces in our world. You know, thanks to the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, we modern people understand that ghosts and fairies and angels and demons and gods, this is all just unscientific superstition. We trust science, so we don't have to worry about all that stuff. But Paul's first readers had come from a life in paganism where they didn't just accept the validity of one God, but they had a whole pantheon of gods and all sorts of little creatures that were hiding out in trees and in streams. You know, they were living in a what some people have called an enchanted world where everywhere they looked, they saw evidence of spirits. So when they come to Christ, an interesting thing happens. He doesn't remove from them this enchanted worldview. Instead, it gets clarified. And so like Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, that there's no such thing as other gods, even though some people sacrifice to them. What they are, are actually demons. And so throughout Paul's letters, he affirms the presence and existence of these spiritual beings. He said back in Ephesians 2, 2, that people apart from Christ follow the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work among the sons of disobedience. He told the Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they are unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god This spirit is at work in the world blinding people keeping them under his thumb motivating them deceiving them to do the things he wants and it's not just non-believers who are at risk get this paul tells timothy that in the end the last days some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. So what happens is when a person who believes in the existence of supernatural beings comes to Christ, that belief is not removed. It's given its true meaning, that there are supernatural beings at work in the world. And they're not all good. Many of them are bad and want to tear us down. Jesus talked about Satan in this way. He said the thief comes only to kill steal and destroy. These spiritual beings are real and Paul knew that if we're going to attain to the life of faith that he's laid out in this letter, we better wake up and realize it. Be on guard and above all to stand firm. You see the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places are Satan's minions sent out to accomplish his purpose in the world. We're going to get into this in the book of Daniel, but the book of Daniel presents these angelic beings as being the forces behind all the political turmoil in the ancient world, bringing the animosity of Satan against God onto God's people. And I think they are the forces behind the spiritual climate of America. I mean, you know, surely some human beings have a a role to play. But man, the delusion that we see is obviously something greater. And so wherever there's opposition to the gospel of Jesus, you can be sure that these spiritual forces of evil are at work. And I think this has to be one of the most forgotten truths of the New Testament. You know, We refuse to acknowledge it. We, we attribute our struggles in our homes to personality differences or parenting styles or whatever. But we're sure not going to say, well, maybe, you know, it's a spiritual force of evil trying to influence the way we act towards each other. But I mean, if you think about it, what Paul said back in Ephesians 4 is important. He said, be angry. Y'all might remember this, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. All right? Do not let the sun go out on your anger and give no place to the devil. And you can track down the sermon on that passage, but we talked about how Unresolved anger is so dangerous and deadly because it unwittingly puts you in the service of Satan. Right? His desire is to kill and to steal and destroy. He wants to destroy your family, he wants to destroy your relationship with the Lord, he wants to destroy every good thing in this world that brings praise to God. And so when a mom and dad lay down at the end of a night really angry at each other, they're unwittingly going along with his plan to create disorder and disharmony in their home. They're giving him a foot in the door. In the same way, division, dissension, bitterness in the church is a cause, uh, an opportunity for Satan to come in and accomplish his purpose. So Satan's scheming everywhere, looking for opportunities to turn us towards it. The, the Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You can find it. I got a copy in my office. You get one, maybe like $10 or $11. And he lays down 38 schemes of Satan. All right, this is like an exhaustive list. He gives 38 schemes and how you fight against them. And, and I'll give you some of these schemes because I have found them to be true in my life. That what Satan tries to do is persuade us to sin by showing us the bait, Thomas Brooks says, but hiding the hook by painting sins with virtue's colors, by making the way of Christ look difficult, and by convincing us that ungodly people are actually better off than those who live for Jesus. If you've ever given yourselves over to sin and found that it costs you more than you bargained for, you have been unwittingly duped by the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Peter says Satan's like a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking for somebody to devour. And he is after you. He wants you. On your own, you are powerless against him. You no match. Your own strength, your own intellect, your own knowledge of Scripture, your own theological acumen, you can't out-argue him. The only way you'll resist his schemes and stand firm as if you're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's what Paul says there in Ephesians 6.10. This language echoes passages in the Old Testament. Maybe you know Joshua 1, 7, and 8. You know, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified, for the Lord is with you wherever you go. But Paul takes up these promises from the Old Testament and reinterprets them in light of Jesus. This isn't just God's strength, but it's strength in the Lord and he's already identified what this strength in Jesus is all about. Back in Ephesians 1, he prayed that the believers would know, all right? You might remember this Ephesians 1:19 that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come." When Paul talks about the power and might of the Lord that's about to be ready and active in your life, he's talking about the power of God that overcame death, that raised Jesus up from the grave, that exalted Him to His place of honor at the Father's right hand, seating him above all those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that have to run when he shows up. That is the power of God that is active in our lives. On our own, we're powerless, unable to resist. But when we're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, we can stand firm in the evil day. So you need to stand firm. Because Satan is scheming. But how? How are you going to do that? Well, Paul draws this analogy. He uses the metaphor to really put flesh and bones on God's power. And the metaphor is the armor of God. And so he continues in verse 14, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you want to attain to the life that Paul lays down in Ephesians? You're going to have to stand firm and the strength that God provides. And the way you do that is by taking up the armor of God. And I know that this is one of your favorite passages. You love this one. Because it so vividly illustrates the power of God and what God wants to give to his people as we fight against Satan. Uh, And the metaphor itself is really taken right out of Paul's personal experience. You may remember from way back when we said Paul is writing Ephesians from a jail cell chained up to a Roman guard 24 hours of the day. And the word Paul uses, panoply, is the exact word that was used to describe the kit and gear of a Roman foot soldier. And each one of these pieces of armor was probably on the body of the guy that Paul was chained to for 24 hours a day. And you can just imagine him over there in the corner talking about Jesus, writing this letter, looking over and thinking, oh yeah, the helmet and the breastplate, God's given us one better than that. He takes it from his personal experience and applies it to what you and I know in Christ. You see, the deal is, Paul's not worried about actual armor. Because in the same way, you know, everybody knows you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You don't bring human weapons to a spiritual war. Instead, the armor that God gives us is a spiritual armor. And it's a spiritual armor that comes from the salvation you've received in Christ. And so he starts out with the belt of truth. The first way you suit up in this armor is to fasten that belt around your, or to gird your loins with truth. You know, and when it comes to fighting Satan, truth is probably one of the most essential things. Satan's main scheme, if you boil it all down, is to lie. Jesus said in John 8 that he is a liar and the father of lies. It's how he keeps unbelievers blind to the truth. And under his stranglehold, it's how he gets us to take the bait, not realizing there's a hook, believing that what we see in sin is going to provide us happiness and satisfaction when really it's just going to bring death. He lies. And we know that if we're not careful, the same lies he pours out on others will start to infect our hearts and minds. They'll start to fill us with all kinds of doubt and uncertainty, telling us that God could never love a person like us that our sins are too great to be forgiven. If we were really so great of a Christian, why would we have done something like that? Now those are Satan's lies. That's what he tries to put in our minds. But when we wrap ourselves with truth, that's when we're able to stand firm. After all, Paul had said back in Ephesians 1.13 about the Ephesians, he said that when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, they were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. See, the gospel is the word of truth. The gospel that tells us that God sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel that tells us if, we're, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The gospel that tells us if anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. The gospel that tells us Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can guarantee you, when you lay in your bed, rattling around in there are accusations, lies from Satan. The way you stand firm is reminding yourself the truth. This is who I am in Christ. This is how God looks at me now. And when you do that, you'll pretty quickly come to this idea of righteousness, which is why Paul says we need to take on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate is one of the most essential pieces of armor in any soldier's kit. Whether they're an ancient soldier and have like a leather and light metal breastplate, or whether they're a modern warfighter with ceramic and high-tech plastic ballistic Teflar, or whatever it is, they have to have It, it covers up all their vital organs, so any stray bullet or shrapnel shields them from harm. What you need is a breastplate of righteousness, Biblically speaking, righteousness is this concept of a thing or person being declared in the right from God's perspective. And on our own, you and I have no hope of attaining to any kind of righteousness. In fact, Paul tells uh, his little protege Titus in Titus 3 that God saved us not because of any works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This is what Paul says over and over and over again, that the righteousness you and I possess isn't attained by anything we've done. But he said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul told the Philippians that he had suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. And of course, you know my favorite passage from Ephesians, Ephesians four twenty-two to 24 that in Christ they had put off their old self, which belonged to their former manner of life and was corrupted by deceitful desires. They'd been renewed in the spirit of their minds. And have you memorized this yet? They put on the new self. Created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What protects a Christian from having their heart pierced with Satan's accusations and lies? But the knowledge that in Christ they stand in the right in God's presence. Not because of anything they've done. Satan's right about that. We fail God all the time. But thankfully, Our salvation doesn't depend on our perfect obedience, but on Jesus' perfect obedience. Not on righteousness that we deserve or can purchase from God by an act of faithfulness or devotion, but on what Jesus has given us. So that is the breastplate that you and I need, to remind ourselves that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And of course, these first two pieces of armor Come to us in the gospel. We've already seen this, but Paul calls it the gospel of peace, which is supposed to be the shoes for our feet. Now, I think this is a challenging one, even as I was trying to wrap my mind around what this piece of armor is really getting at. See the commentators debating it. And one challenge is that in Romans 10, Paul quotes from Isaiah 52 and says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news so some people think that the gospel shoes we wear on our feet gives us a readiness to talk about Jesus with the people around us. And I think we should have that. Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations. We need to be his witnesses, speaking the truth about him everywhere we go. But because Paul's emphasis in this passage is not about us going, but about us standing, I think he has something else in mind. I think that what he's getting at is that The gospel is the shoes of our feet that gives us sure footing, that we have a stability because we're anchored to the ground. I think about, I never did any sort of karate or wrestling or jujitsu or anything like that. You can't, you look at me and you can never, you can't, you can't imagine. I look like Bruce Lee or something, but no, I never did any martial arts. But I remember going through school and, and not in Texas, but in Georgia, and I had friends who wrestled you know, like the Greco-Roman Olympic wrestling kind of thing. They wore the weirdest shoes. You ever see a wrestler's shoes? They're real flat, and they come up their ankles. But the deal is they're bracing, you know, forgive the form, they're bracing against each other, and what matters is strength, who can get the upper hand on the other guy, and who can keep their feet firmly planted on the ground and gain leverage. That's what matters. That's why the shoes look weird. Because they come up their ankle so that the ankle is braced and they're flat so they can have the maximum amount of surface area for that grippy rubber to hold on to the mat. What Paul says is that when our feet are strapped up in the gospel, we're able to stand firm and hold our ground. After all, I mean, this gospel is a gospel of peace. right? Paul says in Romans 5, 1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whatever Satan wants to say, he he comes and accuses us. We shouldn't turn around and run. We should stand firm, knowing that God is not our enemy, that he's not out here trying to judge us, that he's our father. And in Christ, we have peace with him. That gives you a firm footing and helps you gain the upper hand on Satan. Then Paul goes on. Because these schemes of Satan are flying all around us, they're like flaming darts. And so what we need is a shield of faith that not just protects us from it, but actually extinguishes them. And this is crazy. The Romans had a special shield that had multiple layers. On the first layer, it'd be wood. On the second layer, it'd be canvas. And on the third layer, it'd be calfskin. And what they do before they went into battle is knowing that the enemy often would shoot flaming darts to burn up their shields, make them vulnerable to attack. They'd soak their shields in water so that canvas would soak up the water that when the arrows stuck in the shield, they'd be extinguished. That's what Paul is talking about. Not just any kind of shield, but the special canvas-lined shield that holds water and extinguishes Satan's arrows. This shield is of faith. Now, the New Testament uses faith in two ways, like the faith. And it's the body of doctrine. It's what we believe about God. Jude 3 uh, talks about the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. But, you know, faith is also something we have. It's this confidence and trust that we place in God. It's what Paul said back in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith, through an act of trusting in God. And that's the faith Paul's talking about, that functions as a shield. You know, the the author of the letter to the Hebrews said that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And as he tells the story of God's people through the ages, of Abraham and Sarah and Moses, he talks about the way faith enabled them to remain faithful, even though their circumstances didn't look like God was going to come through on his promise. You know, Satan reminds us of He lies, but he tells us, hey, you know, God has abandoned you. I told that to my wife one time. I feel like God's left me. You ever ever felt like that? Felt totally abandoned by God. Satan wants you to feel that way. He wants you to feel totally isolated and alone. He wants you to look at your circumstances and say, hey, God would never treat one of his children that way. You see all this stuff in your life going on, it's proof. You're a fake, a phony, going through the motions. You don't know God. But faith says, wait, no, wait. I know that Christ is my sure and steady anchor. It doesn't matter what the winds blow against me. I know that's going to happen. In this life, you'll have trouble, Jesus said. So that's the facts, Satan. You're right. You see the stuff going on in my life. But I believe this. I know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. I believe the promise that Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you till the end of the age. That's faith. doesn't matter what Satan throws at you. He's going to, this week, going to try to find ways to make you doubt. The shield of faith comes up and extinguishes every one of his flaming arrows. In a similar way that faith guards our, our minds and our hearts to believe and remain faithful to God the helmet of salvation guards our minds, right? Faith really finds its source in the faithfulness and goodness of God. That's what faith is rooted in, that God is going to come through in his promise because he's faithful and good. But the helmet of salvation is a little bit different because the helmet of salvation rests on something that we possess. I am saved. That's a fact, right? Are you saved? Can you, you say that? I'm saved, right? So when you have that knowledge that I am saved, your mind is protected. You know that God has already acted in the past to send his son Jesus to live a sinless life, offered him up as a willing sacrifice on the cross, raised him victorious over death so that you could stand in God's presence justified and declared righteous. You're saved. That should guard Your mind, Uh, but finally Paul said that we should take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I love what Mike was praying—that you know, if Paul didn't include the sword, we might would have only seen this armor as totally defensive, like we're supposed to strap this on and then hide in the bunker, get in the foxhole, and just wait it out while Satan made his attack. But with a sword. We stand firm with teeth. We're not totally powerless. You know, God fights our battles for us. It is the sword of the Spirit. And so when we take up the Scriptures, not as like a magic formula, quoting Scripture at Satan, you know, hocus-pocus, abracadabra, John 3.16 says this. But when we take up the Word of God, as the old song said, the B-I-B-L-E, That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. But yes, Satan's going to accuse me, but I know what God has said, and that's where I'm going to stand. That's what he means to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the perfect example of this is Jesus himself, who in Luke chapter 4 was tempted by Satan three times. And y'all heard John preach about this a few weeks ago. But the interesting thing about Jesus is that of, of all the human beings who ever lived, surely Jesus could have drawn up some kind of strength within himself to resist Satan. But when Satan offered the bait, but hid the hook, and promised him glory without the cross, three separate times, he quoted scripture in faith. First time, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second time, it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. The third time, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. These weren't empty quotations of Scripture. Jesus had rooted His whole identity into the truthfulness of God's Word. He believed that, that after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, what was more important than eating bread was being faithful to God. That's what Paul means when he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to root your life into it, to believe it, and to build on top of it. And so taken together, this description of the armor of God really proves this, that there is nothing so useful in our struggle against sin than a daily appropriation of all that God has accomplished for us. Let me put it in a different way. That the salvation accomplished by Christ and applied to us by His Spirit is the constant source of encouragement and protection against the schemes and methods of the enemy. If you want to stand firm and attain to the life that Paul has laid out for us in the book of Ephesians, it's not by discovering some new, untapped thing about God. It's not... The secret or whatever it's going back again and again and again and again to what you already know and believe that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins made you alive together with Christ and it's by grace you have been saved that is where we find encouragement and strength to stand firm against Satan's schemes. But knowing that, knowing that is not quite enough. You actually have to take up the armor of God. And Paul continues, says the second way we stand firm is by keeping alert in prayer. So let's get through this quickly. Verses 18 through 20. It says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. See, prayer is the second way believers stand firm against Satan. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise to us, coming from the Apostle Paul. I mean, prayer is almost like the undercurrent of the entire letter to the Ephesians. He starts in Ephesians 1-3. I thank my God. And he goes through all these thanks for God, for all the blessings that he's given in Christ. And then he turns and offers up prayers on behalf of the Ephesians, asking God to grant them a deeper and deeper knowledge of who God is and what he's done for them in Christ. And so it's it's not surprising that as he concludes the letter, he turns again to prayer reminding the Ephesians that prayer is the way they take up the armor of God. You see, he knew their struggle against Satan was doomed to failure unless they developed a life of constant prayer. And I say constant prayer because Paul tells the Ephesians in in verse 18, look at that again, he says, Pray at all times with all prayer and supplication. This is an all-encompassing prayer offered over and over and over. It's not that half-hearted token prayer that we offer up before a meal or at the start of a day. It's spirit-led prayer. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 is prayer without ceasing. It's what R.A. Torrey calls a constant looking up to God in prayer. As if there's like the well-worn pathway of the cow to the pond where it drinks. You look out in the field, and you see this perfect, they're such large animals, and yet they make such a narrow path, follow over and over and over, a well-worn rut showing you their constant practice of walking from there to there and back again. Paul says that rut should be true of our prayer life. We wear it out, go into God over and over and over and over to Him. In prayer. Furthermore, he picks up this military metaphor again and he says, Keep alert and always be praying for the Lord's people. The word to be alert is the same word they use for a night watchman laying awake so that the rest of the people could be safe. Of a shepherd guarding his sheep. Means to remain vigilant. And this was the typical language of the New Testament church when it came to prayer. They wanted to be alert in prayer, vigilant in prayer. And it reflected what Jesus taught his own disciples. And when he came to talking about the last day and the judgment that God was going to bring on his enemies, he told them in Luke 21:36 to be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. A lot of connections there to our passage. And then when He took Peter, James, and John into the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of His betrayal, He told them, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus expected His disciples to maintain a vigilance in prayer over and over and over, wearing out that path back to God. It was Jesus' practice to do that. Ari Tori said again, he said, Jesus prayed before all the great crises in his earthly life. He prayed before choosing the 12 disciples, before the Sermon on the Mount, before starting out on his public preaching ministry, before his anointing with the Holy Spirit and his entrance upon public ministry, before his announcing to his disciples his coming death, and, of course, before his death on the cross. But here's the deal. This was Jesus' personal practice, Paul's constant exhortation to remain vigilant in prayer, and yet, for many Christians, prayer is a foreign concept. And so it's no wonder that, yeah, we know there's power available to us, that God has provided all kinds of resources to us in Christ, that if we'll just take up this armor, we'll be able to stand firm against Satan. But we have not, because we ask not. We're not much in prayer, and so we're totally open to Satan's attacks. We worry, but we don't pray. We plan, but we don't pray. We're powerless, because we don't pray. So if you want to stand firm against Satan's schemes, if you want to attain the life that Paul is talking about in Ephesians, you have to to be alert in prayer. And so I want you to know that what Paul talks about in Ephesians isn't too good to be true. What Paul said is a fact. It's objective. Take it to the bank. That you were dead, but now you're alive. You once walked in a certain way, but day by day you're being renewed to walk in a new way. That's true. But it won't always be easy. And so maybe this morning, the Lord is calling you to get your head back in the game. To remember what's at stake. That we are promised trouble in this world, but don't be afraid. In Jesus, we've overcome the world. And you can stand firm in your faith and resist Satan's schemes by using the resources God's given you in Christ. You know, what that may mean for somebody is that you take up the helmet of salvation for the very first time. You don't have the armor of God because you don't know God. You haven't experienced this salvation, never turned from your sins and taken hold of Christ by faith. And it's no wonder that you've just been following the course of this world, the Prince of the Power of the Air, the Spirit that's now at work among the sons of disobedience. But maybe today is the day of salvation. Now's the accepted time. Maybe it's your opportunity. To turn your back on that life and take up the helmet of salvation. If that's you, if you're here today and you need to do that, I want to talk to you about it. I want to help you take up that helmet and stand firm. But more likely, you got this armor. It's just gathering dust in the back of your closet for some for some odd reason. It's been a while since you put on that helmet and that breastplate. Maybe put on a few pounds, not sure that that belt's going to fasten <laughs> anymore. After all, the last seven months have been crazy. And maybe in a global pandemic, uncertain economic circumstances, stressful times at home with kids, with family, you allowed your walk with the Lord to slip. You hadn't been reading your Bible, hadn't been praying, You've neglected fellowship with other Christians. Get your head back in the game. See where we are. We're at war. And unless you approach it with the same vigilance as any wise soldier, you're a sitting duck for Satan's schemes. Satan would have you believe that you fell so far that there's no point and even trying to get back where you know you're supposed to be. That God has no business with you anymore. No interest in seeing you at church. Everybody here already knows you're a lousy person. Why even show your face? Those are lies. If You confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You're one repentant prayer away from a right relationship with God. So today, humble yourself before him. Admit what he already knows and ask him for his help in taking up the armor of God. When you do, you'll be able to stand firm against Satan's schemes. All the blessings that Paul outlines will be yours in Jesus' name.